Good morning. So glad to see everyone today. I thought I'd come from the other side to see if you were paying attention. Um, parents of campers, how was your week? We reached the point this year where both of our kids are old enough to go to camp. So we had a great week. They're both in here, so just to be clear, we love you guys. But a little break is nice. Not so much a break from them, but just kind of a break from the responsibility, right? And also a little bit from them. Uh, but Thursday, we were having dinner, and Amy finally goes, you know, I think I'm ready for them to come home. And she was right, because really, we love our kids, right? We all love our kids immensely. And we understand that God has blessed us with being their parents. He's assigned that responsibility to each of us for our kids. So we try to do everything we can to provide for them, to teach and train them, and to prepare them to go into the world on their own because we know someday they're leaving. That can be hard for us, especially when they're still little. We don't even want to think about that, right? But as they get closer and closer to that point, we realize that we're preparing them to go and live their lives. And so one of the ways we do that, like Pastor Robert mentioned, is we commit to send our kids to camp every year. They have a week, you know, through our camp this summer, no devices, no social media. That's huge, just to have that lack of influence in their lives. Instead, they're praying, singing praises to God, hearing God's word taught, and just having fun with other students. Often you'll have kids come from camp and they're like pumped up. They're excited. They're ready to go to youth group or they're ready to just hang out and they have this, this kind of glow about them. You know, maybe they learned something new that they didn't quite understand before. But it's a way for our kids to be built up and encouraged and it doesn't have to come from mom and dad. That's big. When Pastor Robert and I were planning the Joshua series, we knew all these famous stories were going to be in, included. Like there's just so many that we had to, to hit on all of them. But we didn't plan for today's story to be the week of camp ending. And so this sermon is partially with that in mind. Like I was thinking about it as the kids were gone and it just got kind of just impressed on me like these kids need to hear this today it's a lesson that we need to learn but that we also need to teach our kids so before we get to that let's pray one more time god thank you so much for your love your goodness to us and thank you for your word just be with us as we go through it this morning i pray that you would use our time to teach each one of us this lesson and that you would also help us to impart that to our kids, to the next generation. This is such a foundational principle of our faith. And I pray, God, that you would just help us to grasp that today. And that you would give me the words that you want everyone to hear. And don't let me say anything that would take away from that. Bless our time. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we pick up the story of Joshua and the Israelites after the victory at Jericho. I believe today's lesson is one of those things I said that we can teach our kids 
it comes from this very next story and what they do after the victory. Last week, Pastor Robert shared that whole story with us, how the Israelites had to follow God's leadership. They stuck to God's plan, and they experienced this huge, massive victory as the walls of Jericho fell to the ground, and they didn't lose a single soldier in the process. But it goes beyond that. Think back to the beginning of our series, this impressive string of accomplishments that Joshua's been on. Okay, In chapter 1, he's chosen to succeed Moses. That's like saying, hey, you get to be the next Michael Jordan. And having that pressure, but also that accomplishment. In chapter 2, he sends the spies to Jericho. They figure out what the lay of the land is. They meet Rahab and her family. And they come back and say, God's going to give us this victory. In chapter 3, they crossed the Jordan River on dry land. That's a miracle in and of itself. Chapter 4, they set up a memorial for the crossing. In chapter 5, they renew the covenant and observe the Passover. And then in chapter 6, last week, we saw the victory at Jericho. So just boom, 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 one after another, these accomplishments keep coming. And then we get to chapter 7. The Israelites are ready to move forward from Jericho. What's the next thing? We have chapter 7 and 8. We have the story today, so there's a lot of ground we're going to cover. I'm going to be doing some summarizing, but let's get started. We've got to get through the story. After Jericho, the next step was this town called Ai. Okay. Archaeologists believe Ai was about 8 to 10 miles west of Jericho. If we think about crossing the Jordan River to Jericho, they were moving west. And so then Ai is just moving further into the land of the Canaanites. Eight to ten miles is probably about here to St. Cloud, but without a turnpike. So they had to walk that, but for them that was probably four or five hours, you know, like half a day maybe. So it wasn't like it was super far. It's just a lot less convenient when you don't have a vehicle. Instead of sending their whole army walking down whatever path they had, Joshua decides, I'm going to send spies again. And he sends some spies, and they go check out the land. And they come back, and they say, whoa, check this out. Ai is tiny. Jericho was huge. They had massive walls and everything. Ai is just this little town. We don't even need to send the whole army. Let's just send like 3,000 guys. And Joshua says, sounds good, piece of cake. Let's send a little version of our army, take out this little town, and we'll keep moving. Do you notice in those steps it was the spies' opinions and Joshua's opinions? But they never asked God. Remember, God told them what to do at Jericho. But here Joshua's just kind of winging it like, oh, this one looks easy. We may not even need God for this one. It's kind of what it sounds like. After they had spied out the land, they come back and they say, "Um, the hearts of the Canaanites melted because of the Israelites. 
like all the people, the inhabitants of the land, were worried about them. They had heard about God. They had heard about these miracles, how they, everyone knew that they got taken out of Egypt from slavery. All these stories throughout this period of time, the people in the land knew. And it said that their heart melted. Well, the Bible tells us that Joshua sends this small army to Ai, and the men of Ai come out, and it's a train wreck. The Israelites flee from before Ai. Ai chases them out of, out of there, and it tells us that 36 soldiers, it's very specific, 36 Israelites were killed in the process. Does anybody remember how many were killed at Jericho? Zero. And they come to this small AI and they lose 36 soldiers and the battle. Chapter 7, verse 5 tells us the hearts of the Israelites melted and became as water. Remember that phrase? I mentioned that the Canaanite hearts melted when the Israelites were coming. Now at AI, the Bible tells us that the Israelites' hearts melted because of the men of Ai. So why did this happen? Why did they fail at this small town? Well, Joshua wanted to know that too. And he's ripped his clothes. He fell on the fa- his face until the evening. And finally, he prays to God and he says, Why have you brought us this far? Just to give us into the hand of our enemies. We should have just stayed on the other side of the Jordan River. Can you believe that? One hiccup, one backward step, and all of a sudden Joshua regrets all those accomplishments I listed at the beginning. If they had stayed on the other side of Jordan, none of those happen. And he's all of a sudden just like over it. Oh, he's wishing that away. Asking God, why would you allow this? What's the point if we're just going to lose? Well, God being, well, you know, God, he knows already. And he says to Joshua in verse 11, get up. I said he was on the ground mourning basically their defeat. And God says, get up. Israel has sinned that's all he says those three words tell us the entire problem but he continues and he explains it and again i'm summarizing so this is not what you'll read exactly this is the bill version but god says remember at jericho i told you the whole plan walk around every day and then the last day you're going to shout and the walls are going to fall down i'm going to do all that for you Remember the last thing I said was, don't take anything. It's not for you. The gold and the silver you you collect for God's house. And that's it. You don't take anything else. Well, somebody did. Somebody kept some, Joshua. And because of that, you can't stand before your enemies. And he says to him, I will not be with you 
until you remove these sinful spoils from your camp. And God gives him instructions for how to do that, just like he did at Jericho. And before he tells him what to do, he, sa- he says, the words are in your Bible, get up. So he had to tell Joshua twice, let's go, we've got to take care of this. And this is what he says to tell the people. In the morning, I want you to bring the 12 tribes nearby. The Lord will take a tribe by lot. And then from that tribe, the clans will come nearby. And the Lord will take a clan by lot. And then from that clan, we'll narrow it down to the households, and I'll take one of those. And then from that household, I'll tell you who it was. So God's just basically going to whittle it down in front of everybody to show who sinned in Israel. He says, whoever that is, he and all that he has will be burned. Whoa. Like we all know, we have two, three thousand years of history to look back and have some 2020 hindsight. But I'm thankful there's not one sin where God said, hey, I'm just going to burn you for that. But that's the case here. And if that does anything besides show us how important it is to God to take care of sin, that's all it needs to do. That's God's point here is to show us you cannot mess with this. And he's telling Israel and it stands for us today. It needs to be removed. So in verse 16, Joshua begins this process. The tribe of Judah is selected. It's the clan of the Zerahites, the household of Zabdi. And the son of Zerah is Zabdi. His son is Carmi. And his son is a man named Achan. And Joshua says to Achan, Tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan's first words in, in the Bible, it says, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord. And he explains what he did. There was a beautiful cloak and some silver and some gold. And best I could figure out from, from people smarter than me is probably about $50,000 in today's money. It's nothing to sneeze at, but also not, nothing to disobey God about, right? But he says, I saw them. I coveted them. I took them and I hid them. So Joshua sends messengers to Achan's tent. Lo and behold, there they are in the ground. A cloak, some silver, and some gold. They bring it back to Joshua. And he took the spoils and he took Achan and he took all that he had. It says he even took his tent over to a a nearby valley. And they stoned him and they burned it all. They covered him with a huge pile of stones and left it there as a reminder. The end of chapter 7 tells us that after all this, the Lord turned from his burning anger. Chapter 8, though, is decidedly more positive. Now that their sin has been removed, God tells Joshua not to be afraid, but to move forward. Not to dwell on this failure, but to move forward. Here's the new plan, God says. Send the whole army back to Ai. 
Don't take it for granted. Send your whole army and lay an ambush behind the city. Remember all those steps God set out for Jericho? For Ai, he says, just lay an ambush behind the city. That's all he has to say. So Joshua takes that, instructs 30,000 men to go around the back of the city where they don't see him coming and hide there. He says, when you get the signal, you come out and take the city. And Joshua takes the rest of the army up to the gate and the men of Ai come out to face him. That's just how they fought back then, you know. I'm going to go stand in the open while you hurl things at me. The men come out and Joshua raises his javelin in the air, the Bible says. And the men from behind the city come in and set it on fire, the whole thing. And so the men of Ai are now in between the city and the army of Joshua and they see their city on fire. And the ambush is on, the route is on. The Bible says that 12,000 are, are killed that day and that's the entire city. The only difference was God said, this time you can take the spoils. So if, if only Achan had waited, right? But now that they had obeyed God's plan and he was with them, they had this total victory again. Joshua chapter 8 ends with Joshua leading the people to renew the covenant yet again, this time with sacrifices and they read aloud the law of Moses. If that doesn't sound like a huge, dynamic episode of the best miniseries on TV, I don't know what does. That could be such an epic event to cover. But look at the difference in the outcome of the two battles simply because God was not with them in one and he was with them in the other. We've been over it at Jericho, they obeyed God's plan exactly as it was laid out, no matter how crazy it sounded. And this massive fortress with these impenetrable walls was a small battle with God on their side. And this little town, Ai, this small city, was a massive defeat without God on their side. And it was all because one person disobeyed God's plan and then tried to hide it. So that brings us back around to why I believe this story has such an important lesson for today and not only for us, but it's one of the most important things we can teach our kids and pass on to the next generation. It's a very simple lesson, okay? But it's one of those easier said than done kind of lessons. There's two Two primary points here. There's more for sure in this story, but if we can get these two down, it would bring so much glory to God in our lives. Number one is, there is no such thing as hidden sin. Okay? Achan thought he had done it. He knew he shouldn't have taken these items. He knew because he hid it. He tried to go in his house and bury it, right? So nobody else would know. So he knew he wasn't supposed to have them. But he chose to take it. He chose to hit it. And nobody knew and nobody had a clue. 
And everyone will speculate, well, maybe some of his family knew, right? I would assume his wife knew why there was a little bump in the center of the family room rug. You know, there's stuff hiding under there. Where'd that come from? She probably was in on it. If they didn't know, I'm sorry, if they did know, wife, kids, whoever, the neighbor, they didn't turn him in. Nobody said a word about it because nobody knew and they went into this next battle. He thought he had fooled everyone. But God knew the whole time. God knows everything. You ever think about that and try to wrap your head around that idea? God actually knows everything. He is omniscient. That's just a big word that means he knows everything. The Bible tells us this in so many ways. In Psalm 147, it says that he counts the numbers of the stars and he gives them all a name. Psalm 139 tells us that even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Job 38. Job, this is, if you've never read Job, go and read it. It'll take a little while, but it's such an incredible book because Job is this righteous dude who's questioning God. And God says finally to him, Job, where were you when the foundations of the earth were laid? Who determined its measurements? Basically, he's saying, I created everything, and you're questioning me. So God is just calling out to Job, look, I already know. And Matthew 10 tells us, Jesus says, even the very hairs of your head are numbered, even if that's easier for some of us than others. But when I think about that, like, no, no joking aside, for myself, God has known the number of hairs on my head my whole life, even when it went like this. He knew every day what that number was. Just that thought alone is incredible. He knows everything. And because of that, he knows our sin. No matter how hard we try to hide it from our spouse, our family, our friends, God already knows about it. Because of that, hidden sin is just a misleading name for unconfessed sin. Okay? No matter how hard he tried, Achan's sin wasn't hidden from God. He had already committed it. He just hadn't confessed it. So it was just out there you know, bubbling and stewing for the nation of Israel to fail. And it's the same for us anytime we sin and we tr think we're hiding it. Really, we just haven't confessed it. We haven't admitted it. So no sin is a hidden sin. What we're talking about is unconfessed sin. So now that we call it that, the second thing here is that unconfessed sin is never truly hidden. Just to kind of clear up those, those different names, there is no such thing as hidden sin but un because unconfessed sin is never hidden. Like I said, God already knows everything. 
So he knows our sin. And if he knows our sin, it doesn't matter who else knows it. Just the fact that God knows it means it's not hidden. It's a mistake to try to hide our sins, but just hypothetically, consider if we were going to hide our sin. God should be the person we don't want to know, first of all, right? And yet he's the only one who always knows regardless of what we do. Jeremiah 16, 17 says, My eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. So we see our unconfessed sin is never hidden, but also unconfessed sin always has consequences. When we sin and we give it up and we ask God's forgiveness right away, there can still be consequences, right? Things can come from that. There can be implications. But when we try to hide it and conceal it and just keep living our life like nothing happens, the consequences just grow. They reach out farther. The nation of Israel, because of Achan, they were embarrassed in defeat at this battle, all because of Achan. 36 men who had nothing to do with Achan's sin were killed. And then I left this part out when we were going through this story. When Achan was put to death, his whole family was put to death with him. Obviously, you want to use that kind of to emphasize the consequence, but like, think about that. If he had little kids or whatever, they were all put to death just because of what he did. So consider this. Consider this question just for a second. How do you think about your sin? Now, imagine that the, the price for that is paid by your spouse and your kids and your family. How does that change how you would think about your sin? To, to be clear, God is not on a vendetta looking to punish sinners. But what have we said all throughout this series? God's work must be done God's way in order to receive God's blessing. If he knows everything and he knows our sin, when we do sin, he wants us to confess it right away. God is not, you know, against our asking forgiveness. There is no reason for us to try to hide it from him. And when we do that, we're trying to do it our way. We're basically saying, I don't want to do it God's way. I'm going to do it my way. That can have consequences that impact our lives and those around us. So because there's no such thing as hidden sin, our second big idea here, unconfessed sin requires a response. There's only two responses but one of them is required. We're required to choose one when we have sinned. Achan, <clears throat> excuse me, chose to hide his sin and he suffered the consequences. His response was to try and hide it, get away with it, see if nobody knew. He had directly disobeyed God and rather than admit it, tried to hide it. We often choose this response too. I'm sure we've all seen it at some point, even in just our own lives, where we won't acknowledge our sin 
and it causes problems in our lives. The saddest part is that we know this and we still try to avoid it. The Bible offers a better way. God has even provided a plan for how to handle our sin and that's the other possible response. We should choose to confess and forsake our sins so that we can find mercy and forgiveness. Martin Luther once said, Therefore, when I admonish you to confession, I am admonishing you to be a Christian. It's a very simple sentence, but it just means that confessing our sins should be part of our walk with Christ. It should be a part of who we are as a Christian. I think a key thought here is the difference between salvation and forgiveness. Okay, salvation is having the penalty of our sin taken away. Right? The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And our salvation is that that death is taken away. The forgiveness is that God takes our sins, our, each of our sins, off of our account. And so an example would be if you have someone who's made just a string of bad financial decisions, right? You have a house and you're not paying for it so you've run up a lot of debt and then ultimately the house is taken away. In this situation, the home is not the debt itself, right? It's the money owed for the home. And then losing the home is the penalty of the debt. Follow me? Forgiveness would be having the debt erased, not owing anything anymore. Salvation is having the home restored to you. See the, the slight difference there? Forgiveness happens at salvation, but then it happens again and again and again, whereas salvation happens once. At the time of salvation, we're forgiven, and as we go through life after that, we will sin. But God wants us to confess the sin and allow him to forgive it. We try to make this more difficult than it is. I've always said that, we believe God will save us from eternal separation from him and that he will have a relationship with us. But at the same time that we believe all of that, we're worried he won't forgive this one. We need to remember our sin has already been paid for. Christ paid that debt and he cannot pay for our sin any more than he already has. We don't have a sin coming in the future that was not covered by his payment. We're not trying to be saved again. We're just having that sin expunged from our record. To have that happen, our sin must be confessed in order to be forgiven. Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will, will, that's a promise, will obtain mercy. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and just to forgive us. That's another promise. The Bible is very clear on this. When we confess our sins, 
whether you think it's the littlest thing ever or this big, massive, Jericho-sized sin, we will find mercy and forgiveness. We've learned that in the three circles. They tell us that when we repent and believe the gospel, we're able to recover and pursue God's design for our lives. That's the same way that we're forgiven with every sin. Like I said, the first time it's when we're saved and our sins are forgiven, but then when we screw up, it's the same acknowledgement of the sin and the ability to recover and pursue God's design for our life. An old minister, Frederick Buchner, said this way, To confess your sins to God is not to tell God anything God doesn't already know. Until you confess them, however, they are the abyss between you. When you confess them, they become the bridge. Joshua and the nation of Israel had to repent of their sin and were able to recover God's plan for them. They found ultimate victory at Ai and moved forward into the promised land. Part of that history we don't always connect is that as the nation of Israel moves forward in time, the pieces are being laid in place for what would ultimately need to happen, which was the coming of Jesus, his life and his death and his resurrection. Because of God's working throughout history and Jesus and the gospel, all we need to do now is confess our sin in order to pursue God's design for our lives. We've said it today. We've said it previous weeks. Our lives following Christ is God's work for us. So God's work must be done God's way in order to receive God's blessing. God's work includes forgiving our sins. We have to handle our sins the way that God wants us to. Each of us is going to sin, and he already knows that. Yet he's still waiting for us to come to him to confess our sins. And if we do that, he will remove it from our account and help us to continue forward in life as we rely on him only for that forgiveness and restoration. Let's pray.